From PRI, this is an encore edition of Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Three quarters of the insects that used to buzz around the European countryside 25 years ago have disappeared. Flying insects, most insects, they make up the bulk of life on Earth. They pollinate more than 80% of all the plant species. They help to keep pests under control. They recycle dung. And they're food for the majority of other creatures. Essentially, take away the insects and everything else is going to collapse. Also, climate disruption is pushing trees in the eastern U.S. to migrate to the wetter west and a milder north. These trees have shifted close to 50 kilometers during a 30-year period. And we are seeing a big change that only nature taking its course might take several thousand years. That and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. From PRI and the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, this is an encore edition of Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Insects can be annoying or even dangerous disease vectors, of course, such as mosquitoes that spread West Nile and malaria. But scientists are calling the crash in insect populations ecological Armageddon, as these six-legged creatures support key ecosystems. They feed birds, bats, and frogs, and they pollinate many plants, including food crops key to human civilization. But now civilization is destroying them. The journal PLOS One reports that amateur entomologists in Germany have discovered that since 1989, some three-quarters of flying insects there have vanished from nature preserves. Study team member Dave Golson teaches biology at the University of Sussex in the UK, and I asked him why this is such a perilous development. So flying insects, most insects, they make up the bulk of life on Earth. Uh, About two-thirds of all species we know are insects. They pollinate more than 80% of all the plant species on Earth. So if we lose flying insects, we will lose all the flowers on Earth, literally all of them. Flowers evolve to attract insects. That's why we have them. Three-quarters of our crops need pollinating by flying insects. So we'd have a world without most fruit and veg. They do other things too. They help to keep pests under control. They recycle dung and so on. And they're food for the majority of other creatures. So even if you hate insects, and many people do, but most people think birds are rather attractive and like to see them in their garden or whatever. Well, most birds at some stage of their life cycle eat insects. Almost all reptiles, amphibians, aquatic fish, bats, lots of small mammals, all depend on insects. So essentially take away the insects and everything else is going to collapse. You've convinced me that we're in a lot of trouble without them. Talk to me about the data that you have looked at here. What is it and how did it come together? So a group of German entomologists back in the 1980s took it upon themselves to start insect trapping on nature reserves scattered all over Germany. They used things called malaise traps, which look a bit like a small tent, which catch flying insects, bump into them and fall into a pot, basically. And they've been doing it ever since from their own kind of interest. I got involved relatively recently, a couple of years ago, when this data kind of finally came to light and we realized what a kind of treasure trove of information it could be. 
And when we started looking at it, we couldn't quite believe what it showed, which was just this wholesale disappearance of, of insects. The daily catch of insects has fallen by three quarters, but a little over three quarters in 26 years, which suggests a scale of insect decline that was just, uh, we knew things weren't going well. We knew that butterflies were in decline and so on, but there was very little other monitoring of insects going on. And so we had no idea just how dramatic it had been until we saw these numbers. What do you suspect is behind this decline? As we were getting ready to talk to you, we raised the question of the neonicotinoid insecticides, which started being used in the 80s about the time this decline begins. How much of a suspect are the neonicotinoid insecticides? I think it's very likely they are playing a role. Whether they're the main driver or not is hard to say. The broad picture, I think, is that essentially the way we grow food these days makes the environment completely hostile to more or less all forms of life. It isn't just neonicotinoids. We grow these huge monocultures of crops, great big fields, which typically in Europe get about 20 different pesticides applied to them each crop cycle including maybe four or five different insecticides, a whole bunch of fungicides, things to kill slugs, herbicides to control the weeds. So there's just no scope for anything to survive there apart from the crop. And if we cover the landscape in fields like that, then we perhaps shouldn't be surprised when we see wildlife disappearing. These neonicotinoids have got a lot of attention because they are particularly toxic to insects like bees and it takes just three billionths of a gram of one of those things to kill a honeybee. And we're applying hundreds of thousands of kilos of them to the landscape every year. So it's undoubtedly contributing to, to the loss of our insects. But they are just part of a, the whole system of farming, which is entirely dependent on one type of pesticide or another. And that's what we need to look at, I think. Just another detail on neonicotinoids. I gather that they're not exactly being sprayed on the insects that are being lost, but they're in the ecosystem. How does that work? So neonicotinoids are usually used as seed dressings. The farmer buys seed pre-coated with, with a layer of insecticide and he sows the seed in the ground and they're water soluble, they dissolve in the damp soil and they're supposed to be sucked up by the crop plant and they spread to all of its tissues, which sounds like a kind of neat system if you're a farmer. It protects the plant against insect pests. The trouble is if it's a flowering crop, they go into the pollen and the nectar and then when the bee comes to pollinate the crop, something like oilseed, rape, canola, sunflowers... The bee gets a dose of neurotoxin. Um, but there's more to it than that because it also turns out that the bulk of the insecticide doesn't get taken up by the crop at all. It's just going into the soil and accumulating in the soil, leaching into streams, or being taken up by the roots of wildflowers or hedgerow plants growing near the crops. So we're finding these chemicals turning up in places we didn't expect them, including the pollen and nectar of wildflowers. So there was a recent study showing that 75% of honey samples taken from all over the world contain neonicotinoids, showing just kind of the scale, of the ubiquity of these chemicals. So basically, if you're a bee anywhere in the world, the chances are your food contains neurotoxins that will kill you at really tiny doses. And that surely can't be a good thing. Now, aside from the neonicotinoids, you point out that there are a whole bunch of other chemicals that might be implicated in this dramatic decline. What kind of chemicals are we talking about? So there are other insecticides, things like pyrethroids and organophosphates. Probably listeners out there, these things don't mean very much, but 
Organophosphates are pretty horrible. They were actually developed in Germany in the Second World War with the aim of killing people. Most of them have been banned, but there are still some that are used in farming. There are lots of fungicides. Well, the the fungicides, you think, well, they're not going to harm insects. But actually, some of them have this strange effect of they knock out the detoxification mechanism of a bee. So although the fungicide itself isn't poisonous, if an insect is simultaneously exposed to a fungicide and an insecticide, the insecticide is effectively much more potent. It can be up to a thousand times more toxic. And then the herbicides just get rid of the weeds. So there are no flowers apart from the crop, if that flowers. So although they may or may not be poisonous to the to the bees directly, if they get rid of their food, then that's just as bad. So it's this kind of cocktail. The poor bees, you know, they're going out there, they're, they're struggling to find food. And when they do find food, it's got a mixture of pesticides in it. And so, you know, we shouldn't really be surprised that bees and other flying insects aren't doing so well. So this is the data that was gathered in Germany. I've noticed in the U.S., for example, where, where I live, that I don't see lightning bugs anymore and black flies seem to have a much shorter season in Maine and so forth. But, but what about the tropics? Is there a similar sort of decline there? The, the tropics are different in many ways. That There's still more natural habitat left generally, not in all, but in most, in places like the UK and Germany. Essentially, everything is managed land. You have some wilderness left in the United States. In in Germany and the UK, we have none. It's all farmland or cities and little tiny nature reserves scattered amongst them. So there's no reason to really believe that, that it wouldn't be similar in most of Europe and the developed world. But in the tropics, we don't know. Clearly, there's massive habitat loss going on right now in tropical countries. We're still seeing these devastating loss of tropical forests that, for all my life, you know, we've been talking about how we really need to stop cutting down the trees, that these rainforests are teeming with life, that they're vital for regulating the climate and all all sorts of other things. And yet, sadly, you know, we're still hacking them down to create oil palm plantations and to grow soya bean in Brazil and so on. So my guess is insects are declining there too, but I couldn't tell you whether the pace of change is the same or different. So uh, E.O. Wilson, the biologist at Harvard University, famously once said, and I think this is a paraphrase, that if we lost the ants, just losing the ants, we would lose humanity. What do you think this huge loss of insects means for humanity? If we lose insects, we're doomed. I know it sounds sounds overly dramatic, but we absolutely are. Life on Earth would be utterly changed. We wouldn't be able to grow our crops Dung would build up in the fields. Life on Earth would would essentially cease. So we absolutely have to take this really seriously. And and it's something that I find enormously frustrating that we we seem to to live in a world where people are very detached from the environment. They don't know where their food comes from. They they seem to not realize that actually, even if you live in a city, we are part of the environment. We depend upon a health healthy ecosystems to provide us with places to grow our food, to provide clean air and clean water and so on. And that a healthy environment should be our number one priority. You know, forget the economy, forget the health service, forget the rest of it. None of those things will matter if we don't have a healthy environment because everything else will collapse. And I find it really, it drives me nuts that politicians on the whole, don't often talk about the environment. It gets very little attention. We're always worried about short-term economics and so on. But actually, we need to think slightly longer term and look after the planet. Professor, what could be done to slow this trend, this rapid loss of, of insects? I'd love to see 
a major rethink of how we produce food. This idea that we need these great big fields full of monocultures of crops. There are other ways of growing food. I'd love to see a move towards small scale production, get more people back onto the land in small farms producing food for local consumption. We should really tackle food waste because we, we grow all this food at huge cost to the environment. And then we throw away about a third of it, which is absolutely insane. We eat way too much meat. If we could convince people not to eat so much beef in particular, then that could massively reduce our footprint on the planet. So there are things we could do, but they all require buy-in from significant numbers of people. You know, one or two environmentalists like me banging on isn't going to do anything. We need the majority of people on Earth to change their ways. And that's a pretty difficult thing to achieve. Entomologist Dave Golson is a professor of biologist at the University of Sussex in the UK. Thanks so much for taking the time with us today. My pleasure. You can hear our program anytime on our website or get an audio download. The address is LOE.org. That's LOE.org. There you'll also find pictures and more information about our stories. And we'd like to hear from you. You can reach us at comments at LOE.org. Once again, comments at LOE.org. Our postal address is Post Office Box 99007, Boston, Massachusetts, 02199. And you can call our listener line anytime at 617-287-4121. That's 617-287-4121. If you like what you hear on Living on Earth... Please join us with a gift of $5 or more. Just go to LOE.org and click on Donate at the top of the page. And thank you. In a minute, trees that travel. But first, this note on emerging science from Don Lyman. The Brazilian pepper tree is a weedy, invasive species native to South America. Although considered a nuisance in Florida, where it grows in dense thickets and crowds out native plants, scientists at Emory University say traditional healers in the Amazon have treated wounds and skin infections with its bark and berries for hundreds of years. Now the Emory researchers have isolated a compound from the berries that appears to prevent skin lesions in mice infected with MRSA methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus, a bacterium that can cause serious infections and is resistant to penicillin and cephalosporin antibiotics. The scientists say that the compound doesn't kill the bacteria, but represses a gene that allows them to communicate. This essentially disarms the MRSA bacteria and prevents them from excreting toxins that damage tissues. Antibiotic-resistant infections are a widespread and growing problem that caused about 2 million illnesses and 23,000 deaths in the United States each year. The researchers say the Brazilian pepper tree extract could not only provide new ways to treat and prevent these infections, but do so without boosting the bacteria's ability to resist our antibiotics. That's this week's note on emerging science. I'm Don Lyman. They're moving. 
Yes, we have another tale of trees, trees that are moving, though not as dramatically as the Ents in the Lord of the Rings epic. Now, trees can't walk, but their seeds can fly, and some species are migrating. A recent study confirms that 86 tree species of the eastern U.S. are moving as the planet warms. But not just north, some are heading west. Song Lin Fei of Purdue University is the lead author of the study and came on the line. Professor Fei, welcome to Living on Earth. Well, thank you. It's very nice to be here. So tell me, what's going on here? Uh, The northward shift is not so surprising since that's mostly having to do with temperature and and climate change certainly is warming things up. But why are trees also moving west? Well, uh, this is a, a, a very fascinating phenomenon. When we first look at it, we had the exact same question as you do. Why the trees are moving westward? So for climate change, there means two things. Often we're thinking about temperatures warming up. Right. But on the other aspect is that climate change also causing precipitation pattern changes. In our study area, in the southeastern U.S., like in Georgia, in the Carolinas, and part of Florida even, they have a significant drought. On the other hand, in the western portion of the study area, they're primarily we're talking about the Midwestern areas, such as, you know, the Missouris, the Illinois, they have more water or precipitation overall compared to historically what they have. So the main driving factor that we are seeing that trees are moving westward is due to their responding to the changing of moisture availability. So the way that the trees move, of course, is that trees don't pick up and walk on their roots. Their seeds go in one direction or another, and the saplings have more success than in a particular direction or another. Yes, so we are not only talking about addition of the new seedlings, but we're also talking about mortality that is happening for the big trees, especially given the drought that what we have in the southeast. And so you're thinking about this as an example, say a line of people lining from say, Indianapolis to Atlanta. Every individual in that line has not moved in a single inch but there are more people joining the line, say, in Indianapolis or in Lexington. And there are people dropping out of the line in Atlanta. And then what's going to happen is that the center of this line seems like shifted. What kinds of trees are experiencing these shifts? Well, so if we look at the groups that, you know, belongs to certain families, what we find is that trees which are those, you know, flowering plants, broadleaf plants, they are moving westward. So those are the oaks and maples or the hickory species. But if you're looking at the specific, these evergreen tree group, which are the pines and spruce and the firs, majority of these evergreen trees are moving northward. So what's the difference then between the pines and plants like them versus uh, the broadleaf trees like the oaks and maples that causes this difference in movement. I gather one is more sensitive to water and moisture. Which one would that be? Well, so in our analysis, we followed up by looking at the traits of these individual species. We looked over a dozen of traits, and for those westward-moving trees, in general, they are more tolerant to uh, drought. They also have some unique ability in terms of the uh, seeds. 
So why do the broadleaf trees, the oaks and maples, if they have more drought tolerance, why are they moving west? It seems that there's more water to the west. Okay, well, so we need to put it into context. Even though we say there are more drought in the southeast and it's getting wetter in the Midwest, in reality, Georgia and Florida, they still get way more precipitation than in, say, Missouri or Illinois. But compared to the historical average, you're starting getting more moisture. And these are the trees are able to take the advantages of more moisture availability in a relatively dry area. So, in other words, they can pioneer to places that were previously too dry for them, but now with just a little more moisture, they can go there. So, to what extent have tree species shifted their range in the past? Trees are shifting its range all the time because of glaciation or retreat of the glacier. And so there are studies in the New England area looking at how trees are tracing the changing temperature and the precipitation in the last several thousand years. But the differences among our study, what we're seeing here is that we are talking about a 30-year period that we tracked trees shift between 1980 to uh, 2015. And we are seeing a big change that if the nature, only nature taking its course, it might take several thousand years that is happening. And how far over these three decades do these trees move? How far can they go? So on average, these trees have shifted about 15 kilometers per decade. So it's roughly about 10 miles per decade, close to 50 kilometers during the study period. Song Lin, If the maples, if the oaks, if the hickory are moving to the west, and yet the pines and the spruce and the fir are moving north, this will change the whole ecological balance in a forest system. How are forest ecosystems coping with this divergent change? Yeah, this is really a, a great question, and we don't really know yet. Because current study, we're looking at individual trees. But, uh, you know, when we look at a forest, this is really a composition of multiple species, which in ecological term we call the community. And so we don't know whether the community is currently vulnerable or break down because of the different direction of these shift by the individual species. So we are interested in looking at how these communities are responding as a group. Are there certain Community groups are more vulnerable than the others. And so this is really what we are interested to look at next. Song Lin Fai is an associate professor in the Department of Forestry and Natural Resources at Purdue University. Thanks so much, Professor, for taking the time with us. Well, thank you. It's nice to be on the program. Our disrupted climate is affecting many species, and migrating birds are especially sensitive. As the time of spring shifts, birds may get out of step with the food sources they rely on to nest and raise their chicks. The Allegheny Front's Kara Holsopel reports. Luke DeGroat is the avian research coordinator at Carnegie Museum of Natural History, and he runs the bird banding program at their Powder Mill Nature Reserve in Westmoreland County. Right now, he's in the thick of spring migration. It's sort of a bit like fishing in a way. We put out our nets to see what we catch. From early in the morning until about noon, 
he and a handful of volunteers patrol a series of nets, kind of like volleyball nets that are set up around the property. This is a red-winged blackbird. I'm gonna grab him by the body and very carefully pull the netting over the tip of the wing. Birds like this little guy with a distinctive red patch on its wing get caught up in the fine netting and drop down into a pocket where they're scooped up by researchers. The red-winged blackbirds tend to hold on tight. It's really clinging on. When it's finally freed, DeGroat gingerly places the bird into a bag, like a small pillowcase, and loops its string to a red carabiner around its neck. Red indicates which size metal band to place around the blackbird's leg, so it can be tracked. I'm heading to three. If anyone wants to check the edge of the ponds, that'd be great. All the birds they capture this morning and every morning are taken back to a small lab where they're banded with a unique number and weighed. Researchers also examine their feathers to determine age and if the birds are getting ready to breed. The females, when they're in breeding condition, will lose the feathers on the breast and insert some fluid to create really like a hot water bottle for the eggs. They've been collecting these data here at Powder Mill consistently for over 50 years. That's how they know, from previous studies, that birds are migrating here a little earlier in the spring than they used to and breeding sooner. And that got DeGroat and his research partner, Molly McDermott, thinking. All right, if they're migrating early and they're breeding early, are they breeding earlier because they're migrating early? Or are they breeding more quickly after they arrive? So what did you find? Yeah, they're basically getting busier earlier after arrival. That's true for the majority of the 17 common bird species they studied. In their recent paper published in the journal PLOS One, they connect early breeding to warmer springs and climate change. Because while birds are arriving here a day earlier for every one degree Celsius that the temperature has warmed over the last few decades, spring buds are opening three days earlier. Those plants and the insects birds rely on for food for the survival of their young are now sort of mismatched with the timing of spring migration. So these birds are responding the only way they can. They're having to to catch up because they're not able to catch up during migration. They're not able to sort of advance that as much as the plants. They have to begin breeding soon after arrival. If they want to breed at a time period, that's sort of what they're used to. When the tender plants and insects they eat are at their peak. A quarter of the species which bred earlier in this study, like black-capped chickadees, had more babies in these warmer years. But another 25%, including hooded warblers, didn't. Their productivity declined. DeGroat says you can look at the results of this study two ways. On the glass half-full side, it shows some bird species are flexible and capable of adapting to climate change. But while weather isn't climate, a few years ago there was a hard winter and later spring, this year is warmer, he says the overall trend for birds is worrying. If it continues to warm, that window which they have to be adaptable is shrinking. This most recent study just looks at the timing of bird breeding, but DeGroat says it's easy to see the implications for the ecosystem. If some species are less successful because of climate change, there might be fewer birds to pick off insects or spread seeds from the fruits they eat. I'm Kara Holsoppel. Kara Holsoppel reports for the Pennsylvania Public Radio program, The Allegheny Front. We head to the seashore now with our explorer in residence, Mark Seth Lender. Faulkner Island off the Connecticut shore is only four and a half acres in size, but has one of the largest roseate and common tern colonies in the east. Officials go to great lengths to protect the terns by keeping people, pets, and predators away, but Mark got permission to visit with his camera. And there he saw the anxieties of parenting that can be common to many species. Like Baby in his baby shoes, Tern is going for a walk, the way some kids do 
without holding on to a hand, without looking back. But there are no shoes. His little feet are webbed like his mom and pops, bright orange red and not quite steady as he walks. He is heading out all by himself and does not pause and will not stop. The stubs that will be wings wheel and shy like little arms. He hops over the flotsam of green seaweed. He drops into the jangle of dried reeds and crosses the tide line. All dandelion fluff, round as a puffball, soft as fleece, small enough to fit in the pocket of your blouse. There he goes. Along the reach of rustling pebbles and slipper shells, off to dip his new toes in the little waves that wash up on the beach. Meanwhile, Mom and Pops don't like any of this. They leave the nest and close upon his unsteady heels, flapping and whistling and calling him back. Wait up, kid. You're going to hurt yourself. You're not ship shape. Your tail's out of trim. You can't get out if you fall in. Mom lands on a rock that towers over him. Pop cries out from the shore. What you think you're doing out there? Threats and entreaties, kid turn ignores as he touches and tastes where the ocean gently roars. We've all been there, that time of life. We knew better than anyone, anyone put there to tell us no. Our yes was so much stronger than that. We were sure we had no fear. Mark Seth Lender recorded these turns at Faulkner Island, and for pictures, wing on over to our website, LOE.org. Why scientists say trees have societies and can feel pain. That's just ahead here on Living on Earth. Stay tuned. Support for Living on Earth comes from the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation and from a friend of Sailors for the Sea, working with boaters to restore ocean health. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. According to Greek mythology, the trees in a certain grove could talk with the gift of prophecy. And there are many other fables of talking trees, from the Disney film about Pocahontas to the Lord of the Rings. Well, now a German forester says trees can talk, at least to each other. Peter Volaben also believes forests are social networks, where individual trees not only communicate with each other and warn each other about impending dangers, they also care for their sick and elderly and live shorter lives if they can't connect with each other. Peter Volaben's book is called The Hidden Life of Trees, and he joins me from Germany. Welcome to Living on Earth. Yeah, hi, hello. Now, where is your forest there in Germany? My forest is in the western parts of Germany, um, just a little distance to the Belgian border in the Eifel Mountains. We have beautiful forests there. So I want to warn our listeners to strap on the seatbelts because we're going to go to some heights of thinking about trees that people usually don't go. We'll talk about trees maybe having brains having societies, 
having some sort of a memory. Peter, you began your book with a chapter called Friendships that describes how you stumbled upon a rather remarkable set of mossy green, might I say, stones. What did those stones turn out to be? Yeah, they turned out to be a century-old stump. The tree, I think it was felled, yeah, five or four hundred years ago. And when I stumbled upon it and researched it, I found out that it was still living without any green leaf. And that seemed to be impossible because a tree is a living being which burns sugar in its cells like we do. And after 400 years, every molecule of sugar should have been gone. And the only explanation was that this old stump was supported by its neighbors. Supported by its neighbors? Why do some trees feed a nearby stump? Yeah, that sounds incredible because we all learned in school that within evolution, each being is struggling against each other so that just the fittest survive. But in the forest, we have a social society which fights for each other so the whole forest will survive. Every tree is interested to keep its neighbors because together they create a special climate which is cool, which is humid and where every tree feels comfortable. By the way, what kind of tree was this stump? The stump is an old beech tree. Beeches were common to whole Germany, to whole Central Europe, even to the eastern part of the United States and some parts of Canada. Nowadays, we have most of those areas changed into plantations of spruce and pine and so on. So if this stump was some 400 years old, how old were the trees that were taking care of it? We don't know because these trees weren't planted, so just can guess how old they are. I think they are about 200 years old. We don't have any very old trees in Germany because each tree, when it gets a certain age, will be felled and sold to the timber industry. That's a very sad chapter. And without a very old forest, you can't detect what's going on. In your book, you imply that there must be some relationship between that stump and the trees that are feeding it. Maybe family? Yeah, that is really possible. Susan Simard from the University of British Columbia found out that, for example, mother trees are able to detect their childs from other young trees and that they are also have favorite childs, which they feed more than other childs, which sounds incredible and perhaps even not so nice. But that's something which even trees have. Yeah. What do you think the odds are that the trees around this were daughter or sons of this mother or father, that they were taking care of their parent? That's possible because trees, they have in the root tips brain-like structures. The University of Bonn found out that brain-like processes are going on so that the trees can really manage to find out is it a neighbor? Is it a different species? Are that my own roots? Or is it a beloved child or grandfather or whatsoever? Okay, wait a second. You're talking about brains in trees. Mm -hmm. How could a tree have a brain? Yeah, that's really something special because it's not a brain like we have. And that makes it a little bit complicated to understand because we really don't know exactly where the brain of a tree is. We know that the root tips have brain-like structures, but that doesn't mean that the brain is there. We don't know where a tree stores its memories, for example. Some memories are stored in the branches. We know that, for example, in spring, trees can count the days above 20 degrees Celsius. 
because when it's getting warm in March, that doesn't mean that the spring is really there. There may be some days after, for example, in April, where deep frost can destroy the new leaves. So the trees have to wait until the spring is really there. And therefore, they count the days, the warm days, and just when a certain amount is counted, then the new leaves appear. And that means that a tree do not just count, but also has a memory. Trees can also remember, for example, heavy droughts. In the year 2003, we had in Germany a very heavy drought during the summertime. And trees, which were not used to dry summers, they suffered very hard. The wood cracked and that hurt them. And afterwards, those trees changed their strategy of water consumption. They know that they don't have to use too much water in spring because they had to save some water for the next maybe dry summer. So a tree can remember what has been going on in the past and after that change its strategies to a new way of water consumption. And that was something very surprising. So you're saying that trees are capable of learning and, and you wrote that in your book. What do you mean? Yeah, um, trees are also able to learn from other trees. For example, this case of this heavy drought, it concerns at first trees which are standing on dry earth. They are the first ones to suffer from a drought. And when they recognize that the water is running out, then they give informations to other trees through their roots and through a fungi network. And those other trees learn that there's something going on with a drought or with an insect attack, and then they can prepare and reduce their water consumption. Or when an insect attack is going on, they may bring poison into their bark and they store this memory. In the next situation like this, they may react much faster. How do trees communicate? How fast does that communication go? Trees are very slow. For example, electrical signals in the tissue needs perhaps one or two seconds per inch. Therefore, they may react within minutes or hours or even days. Because this electrical signal will use maybe several minutes from the upper tree down to the roots, there's a second way to communicate with chemical signals, which are sent out from the leaves. And the, the trees around may smell it and therefore smell, ah, this is a special beetle which is attacking the neighbor tree and they may prepare much faster than being informed through the roots. So electrical impulses travel through trees very slowly, but rather the way nerves transmit things and they can warn each other of danger. Peter, why is it useful for forest managers to understand trees as social beings? Because healthier forest will also produce more timber. But for me, the main thing is foresters should be tree keepers. And the first aim should be to keep a healthy forest for the next generations. A forest is much more than timber. For example, this old beech forest, which I'm responsible for, contains more than 10,000 animal species. And when you clear cut it and replace it, for example, with a Douglas fir or spruce, then most of those species will be rotten out and replaced by species which are not common to our region. Peter, what is lost when old growth is cut? How does that change the behavior and the social network of trees? 
even when you make a thinning and just cutting the one or the other trees and leave, for example, uh, 50% of the trees untouched, this social network is destroyed. When you do it like this, you make a tree changing from a social being to a single. Those trees suffer. They don't get very old. For example, a beech may grow as old as 400 years. And when you make a thinning in such a forest, this beech will die around 200 years, nearly half the age, which is natural. Peter, how are urban trees very different from the trees that have grown up in a forest? Urban trees are a special thing. Urban trees are like street kids without parents. They can grow as they want to grow. And in a natural forest, in a primeval forest, those old mother trees dim the light down to 3%. So the little ones may produce just as much sugar that they don't die, but not more. They are not allowed to grow in the first two or three hundred years. Then in the street, they get uh, from the first day on light as much as they want. They can grow, they can produce sugar as much as they want, and they grow in a very unhealthy way, very, very fast. That's what we want to have in our streets. We want, we want to have in a short time big trees because they look so nice. But those trees can't become very old. They will die earlier. There's another problem. When you let the street light burn the whole night, then trees can't sleep. And they will die earlier than trees which may sleep at night without any light. So in Boston, where we have our studios, up and down the streets, there are not a lot of very old trees, even though the streets are very old. What would have happened to those trees to prevent them from getting to be old? After all, they're protected in the city. No one is likely to cut them down unless there's a storm or something. Yeah, but they are without their social network. Uh, these trees are all singles. They are all on their own, like Robinson Crusoe on an island. We think we have, for example, in a street, a row of trees which should be connected. But in reality, the distances are too far. The roots are destroyed. The root tips, they have been cut because otherwise the roots were too big to plant. And with those cutted roots, the tree is not able to connect anymore. When did you realize that individual trees can communicate with each other, care for their sick, warn each other of impending dangers? I think the first time I was here in Himmel, I know about trees as much as a butcher from animal feelings. But afterwards, to rescue those old beech forests, we make a part of them to a burial ground. People may buy an old beech tree instead of a gravestone and be buried in form of an urn. And uh, together with those people, I learned to look new at trees. As a forester, you see in any tree, in every tree, planks or you see paper or whatsoever. Then when I began to look more and more, I discovered more, which makes it nowadays a little heavy to cut any trees, which I have to do. <laughs> I imagine. Peter, how are people reacting to your research? Most people are reacting friendly because I just write things which they always thought might be true. But really, bad critics are coming from foresters. And I think, I believe it's because I disturb their jobs, their profits. Because when people register that trees have feelings, then we can treat them like we do it nowadays with cheap methods, for example, by harvesting those trees with big machines, destroying with the heavy machines the storage possibilities of the soil by compressing the soil and so that no water may be stored from the winter. And so it's true that most bad critics are coming from colleagues from me 
and applause is coming from the yeah let's say normal people which always thought that there has to be more than just timber within trees overall how well are we doing managing the forests on our planet here on earth I think we are treating them very, very bad in the moment. For example, those clear cuts are not just destroying those social systems, but also the factories for wood. When you cut a forest complete down, you have nothing to produce timber. We have changed here in, the, in this little village where I'm living, these forest methods. And afterwards, we have created more jobs. We have earned much more money. And the forest is healthier. So we have ways to use timber without disturbing forests too much. Trees which can get very old store carbon at the same time. That's, that's clear. But in the moment, all I see the fast profits. There's no thoughts about the future and the next generations. Peter Volleben is a forester and author who cares for an environmentally friendly woodland for the village of Hümmel in Germany. His new book is called the Hidden Life of Trees. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. We take a trip now to St. Paul, Minnesota and Bear Creek, Wisconsin, for another installment in the occasional Living on Earth Orion magazine series, The Place Where You Live. Orion invites readers to put their homes on the map and submit essays to the magazine's website, and we give them a voice. A single white oak in a field near a childhood home is the inspiration for today's essay. I'm Regina Flanagan, and this is my essay entitled Lunch Tree. I learned much later, after my brothers had taken over the family dairy farm, that my dad called the solitary white oak in the middle of the field near the creek the lunch tree. Before I became a teenager and felt confined by the isolation of the farm and thought that somehow it was keeping me from participating in the wide world outside, this landscape was my world, as it was for my dad. While I played in the hedgerows between fields, discovering remnant patches of wildflowers, and ventured down the lane next to the woods until that exciting moment when our house was out of sight, my dad was sowing crops for the cows, corn or our alfalfa hay in the broad fields. Long before my dad farmed the land, someone had chosen to retain that solitary oak tree. It became the place where, at high noon in its shade, dad would take a break from field work and we would eat our sandwiches and sip water from a red and white insulated cooler jug. Now I live in a city where I find stimulation and where I work as an artist in a neighborhood that is leafy and green and more wooded than the place where I grew up. When my siblings, nieces and nephews from the farm visit, they are amazed by all the trees. Such diversity. Lining my street are maples, swamp white oaks, river birches, hackberries, and even a few elms. Neighbors up and down our block chip in to inoculate them against Dutch elm disease every few years to retain their majestic canopy. The trees along my street are here because humans decided to plant and care for them. The lunch tree was retained by a settler clearing land for farming over 100 years ago. They are all chosen trees. They endure 
because of human choice and care. So the next time you notice a solitary tree in the countryside, in an open field or along a road, you are seeing not only a survivor of the original landscape, but the expression of a choice made long ago by people like my dad, who felt a deep affection for that place. The farm remains a working dairy farm in my family to this day, outside the village of Bear Creek, which is west and south of Green Bay. I'm a landscape architect and photographer, and I presently live in St. Paul, Minnesota. My essay is about one of my photographs, uh, an image of a white oak standing alone in a field of shorn alfalfa on a clear, cloudless morning. My brother's barns and silos are visible in the distance. My photography is kind of the thread that connects all the pieces of my life. There are stories that a photograph can tell, but there's also things that are not visible in the photograph and that are really about its history. The oak tree is actually a remnant of a landscape that only exists in small pieces still on the farm. Um, that includes a small woodlot that was never logged, also an area near the creek, which is where I played as a child. In the late 1950s and early 1960s, we were sent outdoors to play, and we were often out all day. Sometimes my mom would pack me a hobo lunch, and I'd take off to have an adventure. My favorite destination was the creek down the lane, which is a cow path, really, that connected the farm fields. It was bounded by the woods on one side and on the other side by a barbed wire fence and then the fields where the cows were pastured. The woods were magical. I'd pour over the plants on the ground and the details of the leaves, their forms and shapes and occasional flowers and I'd often wonder about the plants, what were their names and how they got there. There were the landmarks, especially the oak trees. The sensations are still very vivid. The changes of light and shadow, the tangy smell of decaying plants in the wet meadow, and especially the trill of red-winged blackbirds. That's Regina Flanagan and the lunch tree. There are pictures at our website, LOE.org, and there you'll also find details about Orion Magazine and how to submit your essay if you want to tell us about the place where you live. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Baskin, Thurston Briscoe, Savannah Christensen, Jenny Doring, Anna Gibbs, Don Lyman, Maggie O'Brien, Ainsley O'Neill, Sarah Rappaport, Jake Rigo, Adelaide Chen, and Yolanda Omari. Tom Tiger engineered our show. Allison Lerish-Dean composed our themes. You can hear us anytime at LOE.org, on iTunes, and Google Play Music. And like us, please, on our Facebook page, PRI's Living on Earth. And we tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. 
Funding for Living on Earth comes from you, our listeners, and from the University of Massachusetts, Boston, in association with its School for the Environment, developing the next generation of environmental leaders, and from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. Support also comes from the Energy Foundation, serving the public interest by helping to build a strong, clean energy economy. PRI Public Radio International.